Last Sunday, we saw Moses, sojourner in the household of Pharaoh, now 40 years old, raised up as a deliverer for the sons of Israel. He struck down an Egyptian who was oppressing his fellow Hebrews. Uh, Despite his attempts to deliver them, he was still rejected by his brothers and forced into exile. But even in the wilderness, we saw that Moses continued to serve as a deliverer. He saved the daughters of Ruel from their oppressors. He married one of these daughters, and he sojourned in the land of Midian for another 40 years. And there, the deliverer also became the good shepherd. He learned how to lead the flock in the wilderness. We also learned what was going on back in Egypt during this time. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God has been preparing his deliverer, preparing his good shepherd for this moment. And in today's passage, God calls Moses to return to Egypt, to deliver God's people from Pharaoh's oppression, and to shepherd God's people through the wilderness. So before we go further in that story, let's pray. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So we turn today to Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, which was read for us a moment ago. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, probably another name for Ruel, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb means dry place, and it's important to know that this is Mount Sinai. This is the same mountain where God will later deliver the law and the Ten Commandments to Moses after the Exodus. We know that from what's said later in this chapter and from other places in Scripture, but what happens to Moses here? will later happen to Israel, as we have seen and will see throughout this book. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Angel of the Lord. In Hebrew, it literally means messenger of Yahweh. Yahweh being the name of God, as we will see in just a moment. Usually, the angel of the Lord takes on the appearance of a man, but in this case, the angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. Verse 3, And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, Moses called to him out of the bu- God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So we come to the burning bush. What do we make of this strange sight? Is it just spectacle? Something to get Moses' attention so God can talk to him? 
Or is it a sign? Is there a deeper meaning being expressed here? The bush is burning, but it is not burned. There is a consuming fire, an eating fire, in the midst of the bush, but the bush is not consumed. It is not eaten by that fire. What does this mean? Now, who's usually associated with bushes and plants and vines in the Old Testament? It's the people of Israel, isn't it? They are the plant from the promised seed of the woman that Yahweh has planted and cultivated all this time. Indeed, Israel is under fire. They are enslaved and abused in Egypt. They are in the fiery furnace of Gentile oppression. But that's probably not what this fire represents. Who is the consuming fire in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy 4.24 tells us, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is the consuming fire. So it seems this bush pictures the sons of Israel and the, the fire represents God himself. The burning bush pictures the consuming fire of God dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. If you know the rest of the story of Israel, this should sound very familiar. The burning bush is a sign of God's plan of God's plan for Israel, the plan that he will bring to fruition through Moses throughout the rest of this book. God has heard the cries of the, his people in Egypt, and this is how he responds. The fire of Yahweh is going to come and dwell in the midst of his people, and they will feel the heat of his holy presence among them, but they will not be consumed by it. The Lord is going to purify and to refine them. He will deliver them through fire. In fact, he will lead them out of Egypt as a pillar of fire. And this is why it's important that we realize that Moses is at Mount Sinai right now, because later God will appear not just to Moses alone, but to all the sons of Israel as a burning fire on this same mountain, where he will give Israel his words of life. The Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, the Law of God. He will make the whole mountain like a huge burning bush from which he will speak to his chosen one. And at that time, he will give Moses instructions for the building of his house, the tabernacle. Exodus 25.8 says this, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst the same word used to describe how the fire dwells in the midst of the bush. And once that tabernacle, God's house, God's tent is built, the fiery cloud of Yahweh's presence will descend from Mount Sinai and it will light on the tabernacle, which is set up right in the middle of the camp of Israel. This will show them that this tabernacle is a portable Mount Sinai. That a holy God dwells in the midst of this people, yet they are not destroyed. Just as the fire dwells in the midst of the bush without it burning. The fire of Yahweh will at that time also fall upon the bronze altar at the tabernacle. Another symbolic Mount Sinai. 
Again, it is a consuming fire. It is an eating fire. And God will command that sacrifices be burned on that altar, be eaten by His fire on that altar. This will show Israel that God has accepted their offering, has eaten them as a pleasing meal to Him. But again, even in those sacrifices, the people themselves will not be consumed, for God will command them to offer animals in their place. So this burning bush, this is a prophecy of what is to come, what God is going to do with His people through the mediation of Moses, through the ministry of the tabernacle. The holy God is coming to dwell in the midst of His people. And that's a dangerous situation. Normally, the holiness of God would consume sinful humanity if He came near them, just as ordinarily a bush on fire will be burned up. A holy God cannot allow sin in His presence. Fire must consume wood. But again, the burning bush is a prophecy. It tells Moses that God is going to make a way. God is going to make a way, a way of deliverance, a way of purification, a way of forgiveness. So that a holy God can dwell in the midst of his people, so that the fire of Yahweh can burn inside the midst of Israel without consuming them. And they will be able to draw near to God, to worship him, to feast with him, to enjoy him forever. And this is the goal that God has had since the beginning of the story of Genesis and Exodus, that God and man would dwell together. But remember, Adam and Eve's sin meant that they were cast out of God's holy presence, lest they be destroyed. Also remember that God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword at the gate of the garden. No word on if it was a lightsaber or not possible. He placed a cherubim with a flaming sword at the gate of the garden, a fire that would consume Adam and Eve if they tried to draw into God's presence once again. So do you see what's happening here? God is going to make a way for humanity to return to him, to pass through the fire and not be burned, to return to fellowship with their God. Now, it's only a partial return because they can only come through priestly representatives. They can only come through animal substitutes. And it only happens through repeated cleansings and rituals. But it is a way of return, nonetheless. It is a way for sinful humanity to draw near to a holy God. And thus it is a grace. It is a gift of favor from God to his people. And that's the central message of the Mosaic law. Grace. God is making a way for his people to dwell in his presence. All of this is signified. It is prophesied by the image of the burning bush. And it means simply this. The fire of Yahweh is coming to dwell in the midst of Israel. And he will make a way for this to occur so Israel is not consumed. We come to verse 5. Then God said, 
Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. What makes it holy ground? It's not something special about this mountain or this dirt in particular. What makes it holy is that God is there. That's what holiness is all about. Holiness means access to God. And only that which is holy has access to God's presence. Wherever God makes himself specially present as he has in this fire, that place becomes holy. And it's going to be the same with the tabernacle and later the temple. Anything and anyone that's going to come into God's house has to be invited in according to God's law and follow that law. And they have to be prepared. They have to be sanctified, made holy, made acceptable to enter God's presence. And that's why the furniture of those houses has to be anointed with oil and sprinkled with blood. And it's the same for the priests, the people that enter that house. Holiness is about gaining access to God. Moses, he's being invited into God's presence just as Israel will later be invited to draw near to God at the tabernacle. Again, this is part of the message of the burning bush. Moses should not be able to approach God. He should not be able to pass the cherubim with the flaming sword. The fire should consume him. But God actually invites him in. God is making a gracious way of approach. Why does he tell him to take off his sandals? One commentator suggests you can take off your sandals if you are on holy ground because that ground is not under the curse. You see, ordinarily, uh, the ground or the earth, which in Hebrew is Adamah, is cursed because Adam, made of dirt, ate of the forbidden tree. And when he did that, God told him this, Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. It doesn't mean the ground itself is bad. God called the earth good, but God made the ground like the prosecutor of this curse on Adam. It is the ground that cries out, man has sinned, he must be judged. So ordinarily, you had to clean the dirt off you if you wanted to draw near to God, and you did this by washing your body and your clothing to approach God's house. So this is a unique blessing for Moses to be able to walk unshod in God's presence. It reminds us of the situation in Eden when God and man walked together in the garden. And it foreshadows what the priests of Israel will do. They will be told to go barefoot when they serve in the tabernacle. Because that ground is not prosecuting the curse against them. It has been made holy by the presence of the Lord. So here we're seeing already Moses is treated as holy, as a consecrated priest allowed to enter God's presence. God has forgiven the curse, prosecuted by the dust, so that Moses can safely tread this holy ground. Verse 6, And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now notice how God identifies himself. He identifies himself according to his relationship with the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel. Because God had made a promise. 
He promised to make Abraham a great nation. He promised to settle Abraham in the land of Canaan. And it's these promises that are now being threatened by Pharaoh. Because he's trying to kill off the Hebrews. And he's trying to keep them in Egypt. So God must act if he is to accomplish what he said he would do. One interpreter said, what is at stake is nothing less than God's character. And so we have head first, then body. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And that's what will happen later. The people of Israel will be afraid to look at the holy God when he appears to them on this same mountain. Verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God says, I have come down to deliver them and to bring them up. Who else does this? Jesus came down from heaven to deliver us and then to bring us up with him in his resurrection. In doing so, he is showing himself to be God. He does the things that Yahweh does. He enacts an exodus. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? He asks. God is the one who promised to save And indeed, God is the only one with the power to save. Moses wonders, what help can he possibly be? Remember, he's already tried to deliver the Hebrews once before, and it didn't end well. Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will serve God on this mountain. This is how God reassures Moses. Think what he's telling him. Moses, this mountain that you are standing on right now, I will bring you back here. You will enter into my presence once again. That means that God has to bring Moses through whatever trials he may face in Egypt. God will not abandon him there but will bring him out, and indeed with him bring out all of Israel. God says, you shall serve God. In the Old Testament, serve often has the connotation of worship, to perform worship before God. To serve God is to worship him through praise and through sacrifice and obedience. Head first, then body. What future event does this foreshadow? Here, Moses meets God in fire on Mount Sinai, and God calls him to a mission. What will we see later? Israel will meet God in fire on Mount Sinai, and God will call them to their mission. 
He will call them to be a royal priesthood, those who serve him in his house. He will call them to be a holy nation. He will call them to be a light set on a hill for the joy of all the nations. They too will receive their call from God at Mount Sinai. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses uh, anticipates that the people of Israel will be skeptical of his call, probably because they've already rejected his deliverance once. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Hebrew, echyeh, asher, echyeh. We don't really know exactly how to translate it. Suggestions are, I am who I am, as you see in your text probably, or I will be who I will be. It's a strange name, isn't it? I am who I am. Is it referencing the fact that God is self-existent, that he's self-referential? In other words, he doesn't need anything else to define him and to name him. Everything else is defined by him, by its relationship to him as the one true God. He is the starting point and source for all else. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now that... What it is, is a title, the Lord. In your Bible, it's the Lord with all capital letters. That's the translator's way of rendering the Hebrew name of God. And we don't know exactly how his name was pronounced because in Hebrew, the vowels are not written out. And so the exact pronunciation has been lost to us. But in English, that Hebrew word has been translated various ways as Jehovah or Yahweh or Yahweh. I usually use the latter. So when I speak of Yahweh, I'm using the Hebrew name that your Bible represents with Lord in capital letters. Why do our Bibles do that? Why do they write Lord in capital letters instead of just translating Yahweh? Well, a superstition later developed among the Jews of not speaking God's name out loud or even writing it out completely. Instead, when they read the Hebrew text aloud, they would replace the word Yahweh with the Hebrew word Adonai, which is not a name at all. It's a title. It's the title uh, for a master or a king, roughly equivalent to our English word, Lord. Now, the problem with this convention is that Lord is not a name. It's a title. It's not personal. And God told Moses to call him by his name right here. So it's kind of unfortunate that uh, this tradition still holds such sway, but there you have it. God says Yahweh is his memorial name, his memorial name. He says, thus I am to be remembered. But I think a preferable translation would be, this name is my memorial. It's a noun. In the Bible, a memorial uh, is a thing, usually. A thing that reminds God and us of his covenant promises. A memorial is something that calls God to act according to his promises. The easiest example is the rainbow after the flood. 
That's a memorial. Genesis 9.16, God says, When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It's not that God forgot about that stuff. It's that this is something meant to remind him and call him to act according to his covenant. In this case, to not flood the earth again. What's the memorial of the new covenant? This is my body, which is given for you. Do this as my memorial. What are we calling God to remember? What promise are we calling him to be faithful to? It's his promise to count Jesus' death and resurrection as our own. His covenant promise to pass over us because we have been covered in the blood of the Lamb. And this is the memorial that we display to God and ask him to act according to those promises that he has made to us in Jesus Christ. And we present that memorial every Sunday. God's memorial name, at least in the Old Testament, is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so when God's people call on that name of Yahweh, they are calling God to be faithful to the promises he made to those patriarchs to multiply his people, to plant them in the land, to bless them, and to make them a blessing to the nations. That's what we mean when we say the name Yahweh. Be that covenant-keeping God that you promised to be to our fathers. So the Lord continues, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So this is the request that God commissions Moses to bring to Pharaoh. Now, could Pharaoh just say yes? I mean, he could say that, right? But then he would be recognizing that these people do not belong to him. That they do not have to worship him as a god, as the Egyptians do. Pharaoh would have to admit that the Hebrews belong to Yahweh and that they rightly worship Yahweh. So this is going to be a big ask for Pharaoh, as you know. God says the Hebrews are to go into the wilderness to sacrifice to him. This is a really important detail because it shows us what God considered the goal and purpose of the Exodus. The purpose of the Exodus was worship. Think of all the other things God could have called his people to do and does call them to do when he calls them out of Egypt. He, he calls them to work. He calls them to prosper. He calls them to multiply, to set up society and government, to establish trade. He calls them to uphold justice. He calls them to evangelize and to convert the nations. 
All really good things, right? But out of all these things, God lists worship as the primary goal of the Exodus. Indeed, all these other things will only follow if right worship of the true God is established. Worship is the most important thing human beings do. It's the main event of the Old Testament here in the Exodus, and it was undertaken so that God's people could worship Him according to His Word. What about Christ's Exodus? Was the main goal to bring God's people to worship? We might be tempted to say that the main goal of the cross and resurrection was our salvation, and that's true, but what are we being saved for? What are we being saved to? We are saved so that we can worship God. So what we're doing right now, gathering to worship the God who has freed us, this is the most important thing. This is why God saved us, why he worked Exodus for us through his son, Jesus Christ, that the same Christ might be worshipped and glorified by all peoples. God uh, continues, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now, there's two phrases here, stretch out and he will let you go. In Hebrew, it's the same root word. And it's a play on words to show this uh, battle between Yahweh and Pharaoh. When Yahweh sends out the plagues, Pharaoh will send out the Israelites. Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Head first, then body. In the story of Moses thus far, we've seen God's people plundering their oppressors. Do you remember how that worked out? Moses' mother was paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse her own son. And Moses himself is raised in the Egyptian palace, educated and fed on Pharaoh's dime. So already God has been working through these Gentiles to support and uphold his people. And here God promises that it will be the same for the body as it has been for the head. When he brings the sons of Israel out of Egypt, they will plunder the Egyptians. And that plunder will be used for the construction and decoration of God's house, of the tabernacle. Now we're going to stop at that point in the story today. But this conversation between God and Moses continues. God will give Moses three miraculous signs that he will use to authenticate his call. He also promises to give Moses words to say. And he even consents to send Moses' brother Aaron to help him in this mission. And Lord willing, uh, we will see them doing that next week. But for today, let it suffice for us to contemplate this sign of the burning bush. It's not just a spectacle to get Moses' attention. It's not a magic trick that God does to show off. It is a sign filled with meaning. Moses turns to contemplate it, to gain wisdom. It's a signpost pointing the way for the rest of the book. 
God has heard the cries of His people, and He is coming. And He is coming to dwell in their midst. The fire of Yahweh will burn in the heart of the bush that is Israel, and they will not be consumed. And we see head first, then body. As Moses goes out into the wilderness, so Israel will go out into the wilderness. As Moses encounters God atop this mountain, so Israel will encounter God atop this mountain. As the fire burns atop this bush, so the fire of God will burn atop Mount Sinai, as though the mountain itself was a great flaming bush reaching into the sky. As God makes a way for the fire to dwell in the bush without burning it, and makes a way for Moses to approach him on holy ground without being killed, so God is going to make a way for his holy presence to dwell in the midst of Israel in his tabernacle. He's going to make a way for them to draw near to him in his holiness, in worship, and to not be consumed. As Moses hears the voice of God out of the fire on this mountain, so Israel will hear the voice from God out of the fire on this mountain. As Moses receives his mission, so the sons of Israel will receive their mission here at Mount Sinai. Head first, then body. The burning bush is the signal fire lighting the way through the rest of the book of Exodus. The New Testament speaks of a greater burning bush, Jesus the Christ. He is the vine from heaven, the root and stem of Jesse, the branch of David. He is the bush of Israel. And the fire of Yahweh burned in him wider and hotter than it ever burned in Israel before. For he is the angel of the Lord. He is the messenger of Yahweh. He is the fire come down from heaven and kindled in human flesh. He is not merely God dwelling among men. He is God and man united in one person. He is the living, breathing, walking tabernacle. He is the reality that fulfills the shadows of Sinai. And the greater burning bush was nailed to a tree, lifted up on the cross. And there he underwent a baptism by fire, the consuming fire of God's wrath meant for us. The fire we deserve for our sin, but which he took upon himself in our place that we might not be burned. And though the furnace raged and the fire engulfed him, it did not ultimately consume him because the God of the Exodus raised Jesus from the grave. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob delivered his deliverer. And the greater burning bush emerged from the fire now refined, now glorified, now free from the bonds of death and decay. And he ascended the mountain of God. He ascended into heaven. And he was welcomed into the most holy place. And he was there set up as the glorified burning bush. As the heavenly lampstand. As the light of the world. 
And from heaven he sends down fire, tongues of fire, to enkindle the sprigs and shoots of his apostles, making them burning bushes in his image, making them a living Mount Sinai, making them his church, where those wandering in the wilderness can turn aside and draw near to the living God. And this burning bush set the world ablaze. And we are sparks from that flame. We are a burning bush with the fiery spirit of God dwelling in our midst. We have been invited into God's presence through Jesus Christ. And wherever we are, we stand on holy ground because God has given all authority on earth to Jesus Christ. And we know that we can enter the fire of God and not be consumed because we have been baptized in the memorial name of Jesus the memorial name of the new covenant. We have been made holy by his blood. And so we too come to the mountain to serve our God. In the midst of the wilderness of life in a fallen world, we ascend to worship. We come to our Mount Sinai. We come to hear God's word spoken. We come to feast at his altar. We come to receive his commission. We come so that the greater burning bush can transform us in his image, making us the light of the world. He sends us out, and we carry the fire. Let's pray. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Moses, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would enkindle the fire of your presence in our midst. For the sake of your Son, do not consume us, but purify and refine. Make us faithful priests to serve in your house as we work to help others draw near to you through Jesus Christ. Go with us and deliver us, we pray in his name. Amen.